Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question-and-answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include good policing, risks and finance, being happier, and the movie Casablanca. Our first speaker today is Heather McDonald, who is the Thomas Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of the City Journal. She has written several books, but today I want her to focus on her book, The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe. On what happens next, we've discussed policing and issues of race, and today I hope to learn about why attacking the police might undermine the safety of minority communities. Our second speaker is Chris Varelis, who is a colleague of mine at Solomon Brothers in the 1990s. Chris has a new book entitled How Money Becomes Dangerous, the inside story of our turbulent relationship with modern finance. I've asked Chris to tell a couple of stories from his storied career that will help us appreciate how much banking has changed from an entrepreneurial culture to a stodgy and boring business. Our third speaker is Tal Ben-Shahar, who is a positive psychologist. Tal has a new book called Happier, No Matter What, Cultivating Hope, Resilience, and Purpose in Hard Times. Tal will give us some tips on how to enjoy life and deal with catastrophe like COVIDs or the next unexpected problem that affects us individually or collectively. Our final speaker is Algene Hermetz, who previously was the New York Times Hollywood correspondent and is one of the preeminent film historians. She wrote the definitive history of a movie classic entitled The Making of Casablanca, Bogart, Bergman, and World War II. I hope to learn from Algene how Casablanca had one of the greatest scripts in history of film, despite having multiple writers working on the script simultaneously. I also want to find out why the 1943 Best Picture became a cult classic. I would like to expand our audience on what happens next so that more people can enjoy our programming. I started a social media outreach using Twitter, and we want to increase our user engagement, and we want you to be part of a community of interested listeners. I'm going to continue an experiment today where I include Twitter questions on the live program. So please tweet me, and I will do my best to include your comments. Our Twitter username is what happens in six, where the six is the number. I want to hear from you, so please tweet what happens in six. With that, I would like to introduce our first speaker, Heather McDonald, is going to speak about the ongoing war with cops and why the, this fight will make us all less safe. Heather, please begin. Well, thank you so much, Larry. Today I'm going to examine the claim that policing is systemically biased, particularly when it comes to the use of lethal force. I'm going to argue that the claim is an optical illusion created by selective media coverage. Now, I'm going to throw some numbers out here because I infer this is a crowd that can handle it. Every year the police fatally shoot about 1,000 people, the vast majority of whom are threatening the officer or a bystander with deadly force. About 50% of those police fatalities are white, and about 25% are black. The Black Lives Matter folks look at that 25% number and proclaim police bias, since blacks are about 12% of the population. That is the wrong benchmark, however. Police activity should be measured against crime, not population ratios. And if there's one thing to take away from this talk, it's that, the problem of the benchmark. Policing today is data-driven. Officers are deployed to where people are most being victimized, and that is in minority neighborhoods. And it is in minority neighborhoods where officers are most likely to interact with armed, violent, and resisting suspects 
which predicts officers' own use of force. In the 75 largest U.S. counties, which is where most of the population resides, blacks constitute around 60% of all murder and robbery defendants, though they are only 15% of the population in those counties. Nationwide, blacks commit homicide at eight times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. In Chicago, blacks commit about 80% of all shootings and homicides, though they are less than a third of the population. Whites commit about 2% of all shootings and homicides in Chicago. A black Chicagoan is 50 times more likely to commit a shooting than a white Chicagoan. These disparities are repeated in every American city, and they have enormous consequences for police use of force. The greater the chance that officers confront armed and resisting suspects, the more likely they are to escalate their own use of force, and that chance is far higher in black communities. So that 25% or so share of fatal police shootings each year comprised of black victims, when measured against a crime benchmark, does not support the Black Lives Matter narrative. What about individual cases? George Floyd's death was immediately portrayed as a symbol of systemic anti-black police violence. But if we conclude from an individual case that the police are biased against black men, we could just as easily conclude from other individual cases that the police are biased against white men. Take the death of Tony Timpa, which adumbrated the death of Mr. Floyd. In 2016, the 32-year-old schizophrenic called 911 in Dallas to report that he was off his medication, frightened, and in need of help. Three Dallas police officers responded and kept him face down on the ground for 13 minutes with a knee to his back, all the while joking about Timpa's mental illness. Timpa was handcuffed and had not resisted or threatened the officers. He pleaded for help more than 30 times, exclaiming that the cops were killing him. He was dead by the time the officers loaded him into the ambulance. Very few Americans outside of Timpa's family know his name. His death did not make international news or spur widespread riots. Because Timpa was white, his death did not fit the Black Lives Matter narrative, and thus was of no interest to the activists or to the press. There are many more Tony Timpas. The perception that questionable police tactics occur almost exclusively against black males is a function of what the media choose to cover. The charge that blacks are at daily risk of white supremacy extends beyond police-civilian interactions to civilian-on-civilian interactions. As LeBron James has tweeted, quote, we are literally hunted every day, every time we step outside the comfort of our homes. This, too, is a sentiment at odds with the data. In the universe of all non-lethal interracial violence between blacks and whites, blacks commit 88% of that interracial violence whites 12%. It also bears noting that a police officer is anywhere from 15 to 30 times more likely, depending on the year, to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be killed by a police officer. In conclusion, the delegitimation of law enforcement, the constant message that officers are racist simply for fighting crime, have led to demoralization and depolicing. Last year, homicides in the U.S. saw the largest annual percentage increase in recorded history. That crime increase is continuing in 2021. The law-abiding residents of high-crime communities have been the initial victims of this growing wave of lawlessness. Last year, over four dozen black children nationally were fatally gunned down in drive-by shootings, shot in their bedrooms, back porches, and at, at birthday parties. None of them was killed by a cop or by a white criminal. They were all shot by black gangbangers. 
The only thing that will slow this false narrative about police racism is if white children start being gunned down in drive-by shootings as well. The allegedly anti-racist press ignores young black victims but goes into crisis mode when white children are shot, as the reaction to those rare, rare school shootings shows. Cumulatively, there are several Newton Connecticut's every year in the black community. Only the police pay consistent attention. It is not just lives at stake. This attack on law enforcement undermines our justice system and fundamental rights. It is essential, therefore, to counter the lies about the police and to hope that reason still has a place in public discourse. Thank you, Larry, for this opportunity to address your audience. Thanks, Heather. All right, let's get started with um, a chat about um, how it's affecting policing. Um, what are the police, how do police respond when they're attacked uh, as being delegitimate, whether being racist, whether being overly aggressive? Um, are they less challenging? Are they, are they not getting in the field? How does it play day to day, both in the black community and the white communities? Policing is political, and if, if cops get the message relentlessly, which comes about every day now, that they are racist for engaging in proactive policing in high-crime communities, things like getting out of your car if you're driving by and see somebody hitching up his waistband as if he has a gun at 2 a.m. on a known drug corner, the cops don't have to get out of, that, out of their car. They don't have to make that stop. That's purely discretionary. They're mandated to answer 911 calls when somebody has already been shot or somebody has already been robbed. When they're told that they're racist for engaging in that proactive discretionary policing, it's quite understandable and arguably uh, proper that they do much less of it. So cops now are in a purely reactive mode. They're driving around in their cars waiting for the next 911 call to come out of their out of, out of their radio, and they are not engaged in those types of stops which actually discourage violence, which try to uh, intervene in, in suspicious behavior before it ripens into a felony. So you have now a massive drop in stops and arrests, and you can graph it. I mean, there is a, a, a discrete, obvious, uh, inverse proportion between the amount of proactive activity of cops and the amount of violent crime. Violent crime, as I say, last year had the largest percentage increase in homicides. We're likely to hit about 20,000 uh, homicide victims. Over half of those will be black, uh, even though blacks are only 12% of the population. When cops back off of policing, it's the law-abiding residents of high-crime neighborhoods who, who suffer most. I mean, I have been, Larry, to innumerable police community meetings in high-crime neighborhoods, whether it's central Harlem, south-central L.A., uh, Brooklyn, Chicago, south side of Chicago, what I hear again and again is those good law-abiding people begging for more police protection. They want more officers, but more importantly, they want more proactive activity. They say, why aren't you arresting the dealers, or you arrest them and they're back on the street the next day? Why aren't you getting those kids who are hanging out by the hundreds on a block fighting, why don't you move them on? Why don't you arrest them? Whatever happened to truancy laws? Whatever happened to loitering laws? So it is primarily, initially, uh, people in those neighborhoods that are hurt when the cops back off. But this thing is spreading. It's spreading now through uh, carjackings. Carjackings are out of control in Chicago, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and elsewhere. 
uh, and and eventually it, it's possible that these drive-by shootings will be coming to a neighborhood near you. We had um, Peter Moskis on our call a few months ago. I don't know if you know Peter, but he wrote a book called Cop in the Hood, My Year Policing Baltimore's Eastern District. And he's a sociologist, a, a professor, and he took a job at the police academy and was trained to be a policeman. And he describes how um, he would drive up to a corner where uh, some African-American drug dealers were hanging out, and he would say, listen, guys, um, when I come back around the block, I want to see you guys gone. Um, is that sort of telling people to disperse? Is that also going down? Is that the sort of uh, you know asking for identification, asking for what are you doing on this at this place? Explain yourself um, using discretionary police tactics to try to ascertain who the bad actors are and getting them away from the corner. Well, I know Peter Moskos, and he's done some great work, and I would imagine yes, because. Cops now, uh, they fear that any interaction that gets out of control, if they're caught on a cell phone video using, uh, you know, more than, than just verbal commands, uh, they can blow, out, blow up and uh, they just don't want to put their careers at risk. You know, you have now a massive flight from the profession. Uh, people are taking early retirements. Recruiting is over. I mean, it, it's over. The, you, defunding is kind of an irrelevancy because even if a, if a police department wants to beef itself up, which many now do, nobody's going into this job. The long-standing cop fel, uh, families are telling anybody they know, don't even think about it because from the day you start this job, you're a racist and there's nothing you can do to clear your name. So I would imagine that, yes, those types of discretionary, and you're absolutely right, Larry, to, to note that you do not have to make an arrest. You know, it's, if you see somebody drinking from a public, uh, a bottle in public, which is a misdemeanor, you don't have to make an arrest. You can just pour out the, the scotch or whatever it is and say, I don't want to see you do this again. And, and good cops know to use that discretion. I would imagine that that, that sort of activity is also down. We just got uh, a question from the audience. This one's from my good friend, Neil Ross. Uh, Neil wants to know, would the ending the war on drugs uh, substantially reduce the murder rate? Is, is, is it the drug wars that's driving this uh, epidemic? No, it's not. Uh, you know, the drive-by shootings that we're seeing now are just kids uh, with beefs and grudge matches uh, that have – uh, offended each other on social media or whatnot, and you get a chain of retaliation. Uh, it's also, let me just fend off another question. The media loves the uh, explanation that it's because of the pandemic. Now they're they're quickly like saying, okay, well, violence went up because of the pandemic, as if these kids are out there shooting each other because they're out of a job. You know that they would otherwise be putting bread on the table, and they're just they're just uh, struggling for for subsistence. No, they all have smartphones. Smartphones are the police's best friends. They throw gang signs on their smartphones. They they show off their 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 money and their and their uh, guns. Uh, so so we, but we've been hearing that this is all because of the pandemic. Now that the pandemic is ending, the New York Times has been writing articles saying, well, expect crime to go up because the pandemic, the lockdowns are ending. So they've they've got it covered in both directions. The drugs war, uh, you know, I'm. I have not written a lot on on uh, de, you know decriminalization of drugs. 
I'm frankly an agnostic. All I can tell you is this. Uh, if you look at the work of Michael Fortner or others, uh, James Foreman at the Yale Law School, they document in just just a massive detail that the impetus for the war on drugs has come again and again from the black community who says we want the dealers off the streets. And so the cops, it would be racist not to respond to those requests. They're not making those policy decisions. Uh, so we can have that a high-level policy decision, but do not blame the cops for enforcing drug laws because that is what they hear. I've, I've been in police community meetings in the 41st precinct of the South Bronx where somebody stood up and said, I smell pot in my, in my apartment corridor. Can you do something about it? So they, people that live with open-air drug trade and, and drug use generally feel like it's a pall on their community. Uh, so again, I, I don't think that that's the main thing driving it at this point. At this point, it is it is kids that never learn self control. Their gun is their power, and they are using it in an utterly grotesque, uh, callous, cruel way. Let me try a different direction. Um, we had a, a book club with a I can't recall the woman's name, a, a New York Times reporter who wrote a book who was opposed to these new gun courts in New York. So Bloomberg um, passed some very strong anti-gun laws, uh, and the result is that um, they have arrested a number of African-Americans for illegally having a gun, and that can result in in jail uh, time for um, for people who caught with these illegal guns. Um, but now the progressive left wants to um, not enforce the gun laws, where do you think uh, – where should we be on gun laws, and how does that enforcement uh, follow the same sort of script as the one you've described? Yeah, it's amazing. On the one hand, you know, if there's one of these very rare mass shootings, they, the left loves mass shootings because they have a greater percentage of whites, although they're still disproportionately committed by blacks. They'll go on about gun laws, but then in Chicago as well, uh, under Rahm Emanuel and some of his police commissioners – they wanted to have stricter enforcement of of gun laws, and the Black Caucus in Springfield wouldn't let them do it because of disparate impact. That's the two things. I mean, like take away the benchmark issue, take away as well disparate impact. Disparate impact is the concept now that is unwinding every single standard in our civilization when it comes to behavior, uh, academic achievement. And, and criminal law, it is true, has disparate impact on blacks. That's not because the legal system is racist. It's because there are vast gaps in criminal offending. The solution to that is to re-knit the family. Uh, but when you, if you unwind the law, which is what's happening on a de facto basis now, it is black lives that are taken. Uh, you know, these kids that are shot, it's, just, it's utterly heartbreaking. Um, so gun laws, okay, we can enforce them. I'm, I'm not a gun nut, to be honest. On the other hand... I am going to notice this, uh, something that Bernie Sanders noticed before he really was as prominent as he is politically, that uh, everybody in Vermont owns a gun, and they have virtually no serious street-level violent gun crime. You know, gun crime is a function of social breakdown. It is not a function of owning guns. But that having been said, I I'm certainly open to 
you know, more more restrictions, but I don't think it's going to make a damn bit of difference because these guns that are being used are often overwhelmingly illegal. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, is is became uh, huge. I mean, the demonstrations here in Chicago, where I'm from, were massive. Thousands and thousands of people turned out um, after George Floyd. Um, what do you make of the success of the Black Lives Matter movement um, in a context of their demands for defunding of the police? Why is, is such a substantial portion of the population uh, have bought into the Black Lives Matter uh, thesis? Well, as I say, as, a, as an initial matter, it's because they don't know anything about what the real data is with police and uh, criminal violence and, and police use of force. They, you know, people believe that. I remember several years ago, the, the head of the Congressional Black Caucus stood up. It was around 2016 and 2017, and said, "Well, as we all know, the vast majority of victims of, of fatal police violence this year have been black." And at that point, it was maybe 21 percent uh, of of uh, victims of, of fatal police violence were black. So, as I say. The, the public is completely in the dark about the reality of police use of force. They are completely in the dark about the degree of violence that is going on in inner city neighborhoods. It is astonishing to me. And, and the media will not cover it. It is astonishing that we continue to talk about phantom police racism when every single day there are two dozen blacks being killed in these drive-by shootings that nobody gives a damn about except for the cops. Kids, I mean, in Minneapolis, over three weeks uh, in, in May, three children, a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a nine-year-old were shot in the head. Two of them have now died. The, the, the boy, the oldest one, the 10-year-old, is still on life support. He'll be a vegetable for the rest of his life. In, in Chicago, you have 10 children already under 15 have killed this year. That's three times more than last year. That's more than all children killed in 2019. This is going on on a daily basis. Nobody wants to talk about it. They would rather focus on the idea of systemic racism. Americans, so far from being white supremacists, turn their eyes away in, in shame and embarrassment for the, the breakdown of social norms in the inner city that is leading to levels of violence, if, if white parents had to put up with what black parents put up with, as I say, there would be a national revolution. It wouldn't last for a day. Uh, but, but, but the country turns its eyes away and talks about we are shooting the messenger, which is the police. The police are not the problem in these communities. Criminals are. And yet we've been having this completely deceptive narrative discourse for the last three decades about phony police racism in, not, in order not to talk about a far more difficult problem, which is exponentially higher rates of black violent street crime. We have a question from an audience member, Erwin uh, Warren. He asks, uh, why are African-American mayoral candidates as well as district attorneys overwhelmingly running on the defund the police um, and to not enforcing minor crimes or prosecuting minor crimes if the victims are, in general, African-Americans? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Erwin. It's a mystery. Now, there's a few that break, and uh, but but generally, at this point, political power that that flows from the victimhood narrative is so vast. Why would anybody give it up? Uh, you know, crying systemic racism is is a is a ticket to power, and and media attention and 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 federal dollars. So. It, it, it is just a, it is amazing to me. It's a it's a political failure. It's a lacuna. Uh, people, you know, go. I urge anybody go find out when there's a, a police community meeting in your neighborhood, your city's one of its high crime neighborhoods, and I can guarantee you, you will hear exactly what I have reported. You will hear people begging for more police and more aggressive enforcement. And and that just never filters up. Uh, I don't know, and and it, it seems like nobody else cares but the police, and and a few voices on on the conservative media side. And again, um, disparate impact is the name of the game. I mean, enforcing the only way to avoid disparate impact uh, in law enforcement is not to enforce the law. That that that's the sad fact, but that's the case. And and as I say, the disparate impact con- concept, whether it comes to academic standards or or behavioral standards, is what's driving our culture today. If you had to predict how this is going to play itself out, um, how do you see it? Do you imagine a world where, um, when you have less policing, greater and greater incidents of uh, violent crime in certain communities? Will there be a, will there be white flight? Will it be black flight? Um, how do you see this thing playing out? And will there be a counterbalance to return to policing, or do you suspect that uh, what we have here will be just long lasting? Well, there's definitely white flight going on right now. You know, the Times says it's all from from sort of pandemic, but no, there's a heck of a lot happening in cities, and black families that can get out are also getting out. Uh, and this summer is going to be unbelievable. The, the crime rates are, are going up much higher than they did. Uh, and, and let me also just inoculate your listeners again, Larry, against the pandemic explanation. Crime went down in the Western world. Violent crime went down. Property crime went down in every place other than the United States during the lockdowns. And it only went up in this country after the George Floyd riots. It was going down here, too. Uh, so this is not because of lockdowns. This is because the police have backed off. Crime is going has gone up much faster uh, in 2021 than it did in 2020 following the George Floyd riots. This is going to be a bad summer, uh, and it's not going to change, as I say, until whites start getting uh, shot. They're, they're getting carjacked like crazy now. Uh, and there's, you know, random shootings. We had one in Times Square. Uh, but but the only thing that will get the, the public's attention and the media attention is if this starts happening to white people because we basically have a racist press that does not give a damn about black victims unless they've been killed by a cop. I, I just want to re- repeat that question in a different way. Um, why... Isn't the African American community up in arms um, when they're when the violence increases dramatically in their own communities? Why isn't 
I, as you kind of described, there's there's one segment of the community that's uh, anti-policing, and there's another one that's the law-abiding ones that so desperately want the police. Why isn't that segment, that latter segment, um, making their their needs and concerns uh, have a voice? Well, it tends to be people that are more elderly that are terrified now to go out and and go to the store. Uh, you know, I've seen so many elderly women. One woman stood up in the 40th precinct of the South Bronx and said, how lovely when we see the, the police. They are my friends. This came out of nowhere, just apropos of nothing. Uh, and I think for a lot of young people, there's just the power of ideology. There's the power of this narrative. As I say, the the racism narrative uh, is is the key to power now, and people would rather have that power than deal with the problems on the ground. I can't. I, I don't purport to be able to understand it. I can just describe it. And and you're absolutely right. It's a very bizarre uh, disconnect in what's going on now. But, you know, you do have some pushback. I mean, Detroit now has announced that it is going to be cracking down on those low-level broken windows type offenses because the shootings are so out of out of control and people are begging for this, the loud parties out of which you get these drive-by shootings occurring, the, the street racing, the the insane driving that's going on and, and and noise, there are complaints coming out, and the police chief there, to his credit, is saying, we are going to uh, do an absolute crackdown on this. So those things happen, and then what happens is the media gets its hands on uh, the numbers and say, aha, they're disproportionately uh, making arrests or issuing summons in black neighborhoods. There's a one of the great police chiefs, Ed Flynn, who was a Milwaukee police chief for a long time. Also, he was in Arlington, Virginia, uh, other places, and he's been one of the few police chiefs that are willing to talk about the dilemma that police chiefs face. And he said, if we listen to the community, those voices that do want uh, enforcement, we will generate the arrest and, and activity data that the ACLU can use against us in the next racial profiling lawsuit. So it's a it's a very hard thing for the cops. Which which voices do they listen to? The media and the activists and the politicians, or the elderly woman uh, who is scared to death by the kids that are that are hanging out in her lobby selling weed. I, I spoke to an amputee, a cancer amputee in the Mount Hope section of the Bronx, who said to me, "Please, Jesus, send more police." Because the only time she felt safe to go into her lobby was when the police were there. She said, when you can do there, you can come down, you can talk to the good people, uh, and everything's a-okay. She was begging, people were begging to have a surveillance watchtower put back up on their block, uh, which the police would use to try and watch to see who was shooting whom. Bernard Harcourt of, of Columbia Law School will look at that police surveillance watchtower and say, you know, along with Michel Foucault, ah, the panopticon, you know, this is oppressing blacks with the, the surveillance state. They're putting it there because that's what the good people want. Hello? 
sorry. Yeah, my bad. Um, in 19, we had a book club uh, a few months ago about the 1964 police city riots. And uh, the African-American community demanded more black cops and more blacks in these senior roles of the police department. In Chicago today, where I'm from, um, we have uh, a black police chief, tons of black cops, has, um, including African-Americans in the police, dampened this defunding or anti-police rhetoric? No, it hasn't, not that I can see. Uh and I would also say that the demand for more diversity on, on police forces is self-defeating. It's not, it doesn't matter. There's, you know, in fact, the Obama Justice Department did a study of Philadelphia police uh, that was of one of these voluntary, they brought it in, it wasn't a consent decree type uh, pattern or practice investigation. And they found that black and Hispanic officers were more likely to engage in what's known as threat misperception, that is, shooting somebody who has a cell phone because you think it's a gun uh, than white officers were. So there's no evidence that uh, there's less use of force if you have more minorities. But what, what, in order to get more minorities on a force at this point, uh, this is painful to say, but it's just simply the case, uh, they end up getting rid of criminal background check requirements or you know clean record requirements and uh lower the the cognitive testing or or educational background uh of for for getting into the academy and those are neither of those are good good solutions so I think policing hiring should be completely color blind and just take the best candidates um I'd like you to know end your little chat here on a note of optimism Heather, what are you optimistic about? <laughs> that presumes that I'm optimistic about something. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I do see that there's maybe some pushback now against the uh, against the the white supremacy narrative. Certainly, when it comes to the kind of diversity training and and people being brainwashed with this idea that everything all 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 socioeconomic disparities today are due to systemic bias rather than to cultural differences, behavioral differences. Uh, so there, there does seem to be some awakening to the poison of that. So that, if that goes forward, um, you know that that may be some pushback against what I think is a very dangerous narrative. But, but I have to say, as I say, I fear things are going to get worse when it comes to crime before they get better. But, but pendulums do swing, and if New York City could come back from uh, its late 80s, early 1990s, and and become the safest big city in the country. Uh, maybe we can do that again. Heather, thank you so much. We're going to go on to our next speaker, uh, Chris Varelis. Chris uh, is a former Solomon City Investment Banker where we worked uh, on the same team. Uh, he worked in the Media Technology Group and is the former head of City's National Investment Bank. Uh, Chris has a new book out entitled How Money Became Dangerous, The Inside Story of Our Turbulent Relationship with Modern Finance. Chris, fire away. Uh, thanks, Larry. I would uh, like to talk about how the financial system has become extremely complex beyond the comprehension of oversight of any one person or institution. Friends and colleagues, both inside and outside the industry, lament this complexity, feeling vulnerable and exposed to its seemingly random volatility. This is a relatively recent phenomenon. Much of the complexity has arisen over the past generation. My parents and most in their generation only concern themselves with two numbers, Interestingly, they were both years. 
the year they paid off their mortgage, and the year they qualified for their pension. But that is no longer enough. I now receive endless questions about all aspects of the financial world, as I'm sure many of the people on this call do as well. I get questions about inflation, deflation, MMT, SPACs, crypto, meme stocks. What is one to do in a rapidly evolving world that one does not know or understand well enough to make informed decisions? The answers are not simple. They're never easy and seldom satisfying. Each financial complexity seems built on and a function of many interrelated forces. To help explain this complexity and how we got to this point, I, did, I wrote the book, How Many Became Dangerous, to explain the most important 10 plus evolutions in the financial system over the past 35 plus years. I start with a simple creation of the computer spreadsheet in the 80s. The computer spreadsheet supercharged financial innovation. It allowed us to ask and model what is possible rather than being combined, confined to the single scenario analysis of what is most likely. It also removed the incentive to include character assessment and financial analysis, as there is no column for character in a spreadsheet. And we all know what happens to those things not measured. From there, I go on to Solomon Brothers arguably the most freewheeling Darwinistic firm in the history of the corporate world, of which much has been written. Solomon was the first partnership turned public company in, to tie compensation to individual rather than firm performance. The balance sheet became other people's money, which combined with an eat what you kill corporate comp structure led directly to the treasury scandal in the early 90s, arguably the first time the poorly supervised actions of just one person with access to vast resources shook the financial world. Solomon Brothers, where Larry and I both work, highlights perhaps better than any firm the dual nature of finance, both the good and the bad which the world of money provides us. Larry and I both had the good fortune of working there at its zenith. The people were truly amazing, brilliant and unique, always pushing the envelope. Their talent has been proven out by the amazing things alumni have gone on to do, Michael Bloomberg just to name one. In the book, I use the legendary, now legendary fortune cookie story. At a critical point in its corporate history, Solomon was advising Northrop on a strategic alternative. We have, of course, created an analysis with hundreds of pages, uh, computer spreadsheets, built burning hundreds of man hours. But at the point of the big meeting, circumstance left Eduardo Mestre, the head of mergers and acquisition, and myself, a lowly associate, alone without the presentation for the big meeting. We had nothing. While commiserating as to what we should do, I showed Eduardo a fortune cookie, joking how it seemed to summarize ours and Northrop's current situation. Eduardo's eyes lit up, and he told me to blow it up on one page and make a bunch of copies and said, let's go in with that. So we went into the boardroom with just a fortune cookie and convinced Northrop in arguably its most important meeting of its corporate history to go hostile on Grumman which changed the arc of Northrop and the, and the entire aerospace industry. That was pure Solomon Brothers. But with freedom comes risk. Individuals left to their own devices, combined with a large balance sheet, low accountability, and limited oversight is a recipe for bad outcomes and crisis. The creation of the financial supermarket was the inevitable result. These supermarkets hoped to get the scale and scope to achieve the benefits of a globalizing economy but needed to create a limiting culture and standardized process of oversight. Solomon was absorbed by Travelers Insurance and Citibank to become Citigroup, the largest financial institution at the time, with over 400,000 employees operating in over 100 countries, 
the only company I believe to have more locations in countries than McDonald's. My career did benefit from that scale and scope. I was able to offer my clients everything they could possibly need, but it came with a stifling bureaucracy. What is better, the complete freedom and liberty to constantly push the envelope of innovation and risk or the scale and scope of the financial supermarket in the globalizing world? Not an easy question, but it has huge implications for the ability to attract talent and manage risk. I cover many other changes and bring it all together in the end with a focus on the pension system told through an inside perspective on the Orange County and Stockton bankruptcies, which together truly highlight how the state and local pension system is broken. In short, return assumptions for most pension funds are bogusly high in order to avoid cash pressures on the cities, unions, and other entities funding those pension programs. Nobody in charge has the incentive to call it out. The politicians in charge that influence or often sit on the pension board themselves, in fact, make it worse by using the re aggressive return assumptions to issue even more pension benefits, making the can bigger while kicking it down the road, knowing they won't be around when the bill comes due. This in turn creates dangerous knock-on effects. Pension fund investment strategies are moving further down the risk curve in search of yield in hopes of achieving their unrealistic return assumptions. And this is one of the reasons we so, see so much wealth being allocated and invested in the illiquid space of private equity, venture capital, and hedge funds. This dynamic is also certain, is also setting up what is certain to be a huge political value battle over who is responsible for filling a multi-trillion dollar gap. In close, the financial world has, been, has fascinated me for over my 35-year career spanning almost every vertical within the industry from commercial banking to trading to M&A to private equity. I love it because it is where practice and principle most often collide with a constant and instantaneous scorecard. The next 35 years are sure to be just as interesting. Let's hope it goes well. As of now, the outcome is highly uncertain. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Chris. I want to start out with some questions about the fortune cookie story because I love it. Um, and I think there's a lesson here for um, both young people and people doing presentations. Um, you know, with every added year, the professionalization of meetings um, and Zoom calls with PowerPoint presentations um, sort of takes us away from, I'll call it the heart of the matter, uh, what we're talking about. Uh, when I read your story in, um, about Eduardo Mestre at that Northrop meeting you referenced here on the, your presentation, was without relying on the statistics, Eduardo was able to focus the board on the critical issues of the day. Where should we take Northrop uh, and Grumman um, in the future? Can you comment a little bit about the investment banking presentation and how different Eduardo Mestre's meeting was and the lessons to be learned for all of us from the fortune cookie. Yeah, Eduardo really had an impact on me and my career, and hopefully I've given that gift to others as well. The first thing he said is, every time we gave him a presentation, he's like, how is this meeting going to be memorable to the people we're presenting to? Assume they see 10 banker presentations. Why is ours going to stand out? What's going to be different? And also at the end of the day, what is the question? What is the question that needs to be answered? And knowing that that decision is much more about emotion and often ego, often many variables, 
But even if you were to take away the human fallibilities that go along with every decision, they also, um, it also really was the core focus of what the meeting should be about from his eyes. So the beauty of the fortune cookie story is that we were not constrained, um, you know, in, in that case, by the need to go through a hundred page presentation to get lost in the weeds, to get lost in the details and to stray from really whether or not we should be the consolidatee in this case or the consolidator, knowing that to, con to, to be a consolidator was going to require a hostile takeover in an industry that was known for, um, you know, not, not pushing that behavior. I, I did make the change from that to say, you know, for a year in my group, I said, we're, we're going to go, we're not going to make presentations. I just want you to think about the conversation you want to have and how you want to have it. You can do the work to support it, but, but don't, don't get lost. But yeah, now, yeah, now to, to, I agree with your point. Now people almost need, hide behind, want to focus on some narrow. It's like a crutch. It's a crutch. Yeah, it's like a crutch. And, yeah. Yeah, for sure. People and so you know what? Go ahead. No, I was going to say if um, you know most of us aren't going to be in the board meeting making presentations to a board for their most important uh, transaction of their lives, but we will be in meetings um, all the time where we have to present our product or sell something or articulate a message. How do we not get caught in the weeds? How do we use presentations um, successfully to to make a point? Um, and how do we use the strategy of the fortune cookie to help us um, in our presentations to um, make it, as Edward Amestris say, memorable for the people in the audience? Yeah, there's so much there. Um, this, the core of it for me, I mean, having done thousands of board, literally thousands, I know that sounds like, you know, exaggeration, but, you know, having been an advisor for 35 years um, involved in, you know, continual it's, it's probably and being on boards themselves. You know, the first two are very simple. Um, it's almost going to sound cliche, but everyone goes in with the anxiety of thinking my number one objective is I got to be smart and I have to let people know I'm smart. And the best way to be smart is to talk about the one thing I know the most and have that be the really the core of the meeting. And so the, one of the toughest thing about managing investment bankers or private equity people, whatever it may be, is to get beyond the ego and the anxiety and the need to show that they're the smartest guy in the room, the smartest person in the room. And that, you know, that sounds so – every time I have these conversations, you know, everyone looks at me and says, like, okay, you know, fine. But, but that is the – a good board, you know, I'm now the lead director in, you know, multiple situations. I find as lead director, my number one thing in every meeting is to control that anxiety, fear, or power move to assert themselves so that you can have the conversation that you need because people are trying to hijack it for every, you know, in every possible way. And it's amazing. What amazes me is when I get asked to do these lead positions, I always ask them why. I feel like I know the least in the room about the particular technology or product. And I said, well, no, you're the, you're the one skilled at making sure we have the conversation we want to have. And then from there, it's about EQ. It's like, okay, what matters to the person I'm talking to? 
what is what is the advice they're looking for? Not the answer they're looking for, but the advice they're looking for, and and how do I provide it? And you know, all these things are so simple. I mean, I, it was very frustrating on Wall, Wall Street's a great example. You know, I I was given all kinds of management jobs, and I really liked it, and I was told I was a good manager, and I was asked, you know, how I was a good manager, and I would give these answers, and management would get very frustrated saying it's got to be more than that. And I go, let me just ask you a simple question. Why did you put me in charge of investment banking? Why did you put me in charge of national investment, whatever cultures are? And the answer is you did the most deals with anybody. It was never you're a good manager. It was never you're like, you know, you looked like someone who could manage people and do a good job. It was like, okay, you did more than deals with anybody else. You're, you're the one in charge. And then you remember the Solomon culture, you know, the last thing you wanted to be was overhead. So it was almost embarrassing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was almost embarrassing if you spent time on management, right? So true. I, I want to go back um, and now talk about the change in culture on Wall Street. Um, I mean, my God, when I joined Solomon Brothers in 1986, it was just the most fantastic institution. Um, there was no wizard behind the curtain. It was a free-for-all of incredibly entrepreneurial activity, very bright, enthusiastic, creative people trying to solve problems. It was phenomenal. And then you describe that today – um, it's a financial supermarket, but it's highly bureaucratized. Um, and words like freewheeling and creative and fun and um, no one in charge, it's, it's the opposite. Citigroup has killed the fun. And the question is, um, why did that happen? Is that natural? And the second question is, imagine you've got a college student who wants to go into the world of business it used to be the place you wanted to go to work as one as an analyst at one of the top investment banks would you encourage your child to do that um or would you encourage them to do something else because of the change in the culture of these institutions yeah the first one has definitely far-reaching consequences to the industry because if you're not you know if you're not if you're not attracting the best and the brightest um, you know, how is this industry going to innovate and evolve for the positive? And that's very, very concerning. But the, fa the fact is, when you have Solomon Brothers for all its beauty, and it was a beautiful place, it was probably the most meritocratic place, too. Like, it didn't matter. You know, skin color didn't matter. Nothing mattered. Sexual, I was surprised that nothing mattered. Now, now were there less women than you would like? Of course, because the it was such a brutally open and and you know place but the women that were successful were were very well respected as you recall so it was also a very meritocratic place but the problem is once once the system once the balance sheet got separated from accountability once we got in the global economy you couldn't the the bad actors which were only one or two percent could do so much damage that just the fear of that tail risk of just one or two people required a very compliance-driven um, entity, which then, of course, given it's so hard to manage, was not a place that people who wanted, you know, freedom and liberty to expand and create risk and push the envelope. There was a mismatch then of certain types of talent. 
And so that's why these entities have had no choice but to become blander, safer, um, you know, entities. You know, my daughter's graduating from high school, going on to college. I get this question from many. It's hard for me to argue for going into um, investment banking because I don't view that as where the critical decisions are made anymore. These, unfortunately, the Northrop's of the world now have their own internal advisory. A lot of the products have become commodity. You know, interesting now, the real, the real, I guess, juice is in the, is in the uh, capital allocation game. So, you know, private equity and venture capital is interesting. But, you know, I always ask and I always tell those that ask, where, what are the most interesting challenges that you face right now? And, and those, those, are, are, those are within systemic risks in the financial institutions, but not at the micro level. Now the big questions are, you know, how do tech and community come together? How does social media get managed to make sure, you know, that the, what Heather talked about doesn't come to be where we're, where we're focusing really on the wrong. We're not even asking the right questions, let alone trying to come up with the right answers. And, you know, how do we let, how do, how do those, so those, I always go, I always say, where's the tension? Where's the interesting tension in the world? Go get the job that is resolving that tension. And unfortunately, investment banking analysts, you know, that's not where the tension is. It was when you and I were there because mm-hmm. what these, you know, we were actually in the room when these big decisions were, corporate decisions were being made. Well, I want to go back to your issue about complexity in the financial system for a second. Um, immediately after Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, um, I called the former CEO of Sound Brothers, John Goodfriend, and I asked him to lunch. And I asked Mr. Goodfriend why he thought Lehman Brothers uh, went bust. And he said it was at the point where the institution itself got to be more complex than the ability of management to manage the, the process. And I think you're basically making a similar point as Mr. Goodfriend as to what's going on right now. Um, first, do you agree with Mr. Goodfriend about the complexity versus management disability? And if the world, if financial institutions are becoming exceedingly more complex with time, um, I don't believe in the ability of management to get better. What can we do to simplify management problems um, to allow these financial institutions to survive in a more complicated financial system? Yeah, that's the big question. I mean, I believe complexity is rising and accelerating, and the leadership within finance is not is not commensurate with that. So I not only do I agree with them, but I believe that the gap is actually um, widening. The response to that, it, yeah, then you combine it with the models of business are all about scale, scope, and efficiency. It's all about mass producing products on a global level, standardizing it because that's what that's what creates the biggest margin. And so it, it, it would take me, you know, I guess I don't want to say read the book, but, you know, it's like all of these forces that, you know, all these guardrails are getting taken away, you know, the removal of character, the removal of accountability, the removal of, of mission statement, the removal of time, you know, everything is, everything is increasing risk while, while take, you know, while not, while not increasing our ability to deal with it. The the answer typically is this is what this is to me what's so fascinating about finance. The the answer typically in the world of finance is 
yes, every bad idea starts a good idea. We create something, it gets pushed to a limit, it breaks, the system is resilient enough to then take it, you know, you know, to basically backtrack, but hopefully the innovation pushed us more forward than back. And hopefully net net more people were better off than were hurt. It doesn't answer the question of what group, you know, the, you know, each each group that's hurt is specific to the to the financial innovation being pushed beyond its limit. But that's the system we live in. We take the freedom, and then we take the pain that comes when that freedom is pushed, you know, beyond its limit. What's worrisome now is it feels as though we're creating a systemic risk of complexity that when pushed to its limits and does break, which will happen in many different forms that are hard to predict, the fallout will be large and it will be very acute for certain groups of people. And we don't have anything set up to basically be uh, a safety net for that. Well, with, that with that negativity, Chris, I want you to end on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? So when I speak to groups, I'm shocked. I didn't expect this. I'm shocked in the late 20s to early 30s. I'll give you one negative. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked by the number of women that come to me and say the financial system is ruining their lives. They don't feel like they can get good jobs. They don't feel like they're going to be able to get married because it's hard to find a spouse, the job. They won't be able to afford to have children. They don't think they're going to have the stability to you know, have that retirement some down, down the road, whatever that means if they get there. So they're very, very negative. But then they come to me and they say, tell me what to do. What should I do? I want to do something. I, there's something, there's, there's an intuitiveness about humans that, that I think appreciate the sensitivity of the system and they see it impacting their daily lives and they really have a desire to make change. The question is, how do you develop that plan and the leadership to bring about evolutionary change that's going to matter? But there's, there's, clearly, there's clearly the desire to do something. It, it's, the Wall, it's the Occupy Wall Street sort of 2.0, like, okay, we got angry. You know, now what can we do about it? And, and, and their, their desire for change is very encouraging. Chris, thank you. Our next speaker is Tal Ben-Shahar. He is a pioneering positive psychologist, and he's the author of Happier, No Matter What, Cultivating Hope, Resilience, and Purpose in Hard Times. Tal, why don't you tell us how to be happy? Thank you, Larry. Um, I'll actually tell you how to be happier rather than, than happy. You know, um, I, I started off in this uh, field of uh, positive psychology, the science of happiness, because of my own unhappiness. Um, and uh, many people ask me today, so Tal, 30 years hence, are you finally happy? And my answer to that is that uh, I don't know, uh, because um, I don't think there is a point before which we're unhappy, after which we are happy. In other words, it's not a binary zero one. Rather, it is a continuum. And um, the continuum means that this is a journey, a journey that uh, ends when life ends. So how do we become happier? And, you know, it's not easy talking about this question today in, uh, in, uh, in our predicament. Uh, one of my friends recently said to me, Tal, shouldn't we quarantine happiness? 
at least until this uh, this whole uh, COVID-19 is over or the social unrest is, is over. And my answer to that is no. I actually think that the science of happiness is uh, more important than ever. And, uh, and here is why. So I, I want to draw on a term that was coined by NYU professor Nassim Taleb. The term is uh, anti-fragility. What is anti-fragility? Anti-fragility, the opposite of fragility, is essentially taking resilience to the next level. So when we talk about resilience, uh, a term actually taken from engineering, uh, we're talking about the ability of certain material to go back to its original form after pressure or stress has been put on it. Uh, so you squish a, a piece of rubber and it goes back to its original form subsequently. Or you uh, throw down a ball and the ball's resilient, it bounces back up. That's why when we talk about resilience, we talk about bouncing back. Anti-fragility takes this idea a step further. So it's about putting pressure on a system, on material, and as a result of that pressure, it doesn't just go back to where it was before. It actually grows stronger, bigger, better as a result of that pressure. You drop a ball, if it's anti-fragile, it doesn't just bounce back to where it was before, it bounces back higher. Now, it turns out that there are anti-fragile system, all, systems all around us and within us. Uh, a very simple ex example is our uh, uh, muscular system. You know, you go to the gym and you put pressure on your, uh, on your muscles. As a result of that pressure, subsequently after maybe a week, a month, a year, you grow stronger, bigger, healthier, better as a result of the pressure that was put on your system. We are physiologically an anti-fragile system, but not just physiologically also psychologically. So most of the students that I teach, most not all, are uh, psychology majors. And I always ask them the following. I say to them, I'd like you to put your hand up if you know what PTSD is. All hands almost, psychologists or non-psychologists, go up. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, they studied it in Psych 1 or uh, they read about it in the, in the newspapers. They know what it is. And then I say, okay, put your hands down. And I have a second question for you. The second question is, put your hand up if you know what PTG is. Very few, if any, hands go up. PTG stands for post-traumatic growth. Now, here's the thing. Post-traumatic growth is potentially twice as likely as post-traumatic stress disorder. In other words, growing through trauma, from trauma, anti-fragility, is twice as likely as breaking down as a result of trauma, fragility. If, and this is a big if, two things happen. The first thing is that we know about the possibility of post-traumatic growth. We know about the very existence of anti-fragility. So just knowing about it significantly increases the likelihood thereof. Now, as I pointed out earlier, very few people know about PTG, and therefore the potential for anti-fragility, for growth following hardships and difficulties, is not realized. Second, there are certain conditions that we can put in place 
in order to uh, increase the likelihood, significantly increase the likelihood, not guarantee, but increase the likelihood of post-traumatic growth, of anti-fragility. And here lies the purpose of the science of happiness during difficult times, whether we're talking COVID, whether we're talking about economic downturn, whether we're talking personal difficulties in our uh, relationships, in our work. What's important, and this is what the science of happiness can teach us, is first of all to know that it is possible to grow as an individual within a relationship, as an organization, as well as collectively, as a nation, a society. It's possible to grow, first of all, if we know about the possibility, and second, if we know what conditions to put in place in order to increase the likelihood, significantly increase the likelihood that we grow from hardship, that we become anti-fragile. Thank you, Larry. That's great. Um, it seems to me that recently, I, I don't mean that like the last couple of years, but in the last few decades, um, the idea that if something troubling happens in your life, something traumatic happens in your life, that there's an expectation that it will weaken you and that we need to build up a, a system to deal with your um, post-traumatic experience. Um, I don't hear anyone ever talk about this as an opportunity for growth other than Kelly Clarkson in her famous song. Um, but what are we, why has society embraced the um, fragility aspect of trauma and uh, play down or reject it or not even consider uh, the opportunity for growth, um, the knowledge of it, or for that matter, uh, the ability to encourage it from a traumatic yeah. event? Yeah, Larry, it's a great question, and there are a few reasons for it. One reason, perhaps the main reason, is uh, has to do with our desire for a, a quick fix or, or, or an easy out. Um, you know, everything has to be instant and fast. Now, when we experience hardships and difficulties, immediately, in the moment, it's hard, it's difficult, it's painful, you know, by definition. And what our culture seeks is... Um, a quick solution to it. So how do we do it? Well, one way is to perhaps medicate it away. Um, another way is to avoid hardships and difficulties. And that's a problem because um, when we avoid difficulties and hardships, we don't uh, cultivate that system. I mean, again, going back to the analogy of, uh, of the gym, you know, if you go to a gym and all the weights are on zero, you're not gonna get stronger. You only get stronger when there is resistance. Same in life. And you know, you see it with child rearing, for example. You know, parents are literally, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm using this word with intention, are obsessed with helping their children avoid difficulties and hardships, with solving problems for their children. So the children don't lift any weights, and then, um, and then they don't develop those muscles. You know, Maria Montessori, uh, put it nicely. She said, don't do for a child what a child can do for him or herself. We see it in the realm of leadership as well. You know, the best leaders, the best managers, this is research by Morgan McCall, USC, are ones who have gone through the most difficulties and hardships and challenges. So instead of uh, trying to avoid and, and prevent difficulties and hardships, I'm not saying we need to look for them, but I'm saying we need to deal with them, confront them, cope with them, as opposed to avoid them or help others avoid them. 
Yeah, there was a, a book out about um, letting your child scratch their knee or um, I forgot what it was, put a Band-Aid on their knee. I forgot what the name of the book was. Yeah. Um, but how do we – you're absolutely right. Um, I think that the advent of the cell phone has allowed parents to be much more successful in being a helicopter parent, to be involved in almost every decision, to be able to monitor and – but also assist children in their upbringing to a much greater extent than ever before. Um, is that something we should? Is that the same concept of active participation, or is that something different that you're saying it's okay to scratch your knee, um, you know, figure out how to get up? Yeah, the, you know, the, the answer is yes, i.e., both. So it's uh, it's absolutely the ability of parents to be more involved, whether it's because. Um, they're in touch constantly, and it's not like the child is uh, on his or her own all day until the parents come from work. Um, it also has to do with um, with the, the, the general uh, fear factor that has uh, significantly increased. You know, and some 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 people associated with a you know milk carton um, when you know when children went went missing and, and parents became more afraid. It's certainly connected to, to media. You know, we're, we're, we're exposed um, to, um, to, to, to horror stories and, and parents, you know, are, are afraid of it. You know, it's the, uh, the heuristic effect that Daniel Kahneman talks about. Uh, we see that, you know, kids uh, have uh, hurt themselves, seriously hurt themselves. And, you know, no parent wants that. So we become more protective. Um, but we become more protective, and through that uh, overprotection, we are uh, we're also hurting our children. And of course, as, as you know, it's, it's it's so much more of an art than a science. Um, meaning, to, uh, making mistakes, experimenting, and learning from it. When it comes to you know, how much do you need to help uh, your child? But uh, if you help uh, too little or too much, you can always correct. The thing is, we need to experiment, and the goal is not. The objective is not to avoid all hardships and difficulties. Um, I have a question about communication. It's slightly off topic a little bit. Um, You know, it seems that children or young people today, young adults, um, choose to text instead of picking up the phone uh, to deal with a problem. Um, It may have started from original miscommunication. I don't know what. Um, But they're very reticent to use the phone and instead choose very short texts as an example to communicate. Um, even in the, in the dating world, um, you know, the young adults that I speak to are fearful of, of asking a girl out on a date for maybe fear of rejection, but also fear that they will find that too intrusive uh, using a phone call instead of a text. Um, and then in management situations, I also think that managers uh, are very re- concerned about how to deal with problems that work with their employees and, and the directness of challenging an employee to improve. How do we think about methods of communication and what um, the softening of dealing directly with a problem uh, has done to our collective resilience? Yeah, you know, there's, um, there's a real problem around that. Um, I think it was Faulkner, but I'm not sure who said that. How do I know what I think until I see what I write? So a lot of our thinking, a lot of our um, um, uh, analysis uh, comes from 
writing. It comes from communicating uh, in depth. And what just short text messages do is um, they um, help us or our children avoid thinking. And that's unfortunate because if we don't learn how to think, we also make uh, worse decisions, not just when it comes to dating, also when it comes to uh, uh, political decisions. We go uh, a lot more for what's uh, emotional and, uh, you know, and, and, and arousing rather than what's rational. Um, so the lack of thinking, that is the problem. That is a result of a lack of communication and vice versa. So it's a downward spiral because it's also um, 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 we communicate less because we're thinking less. Now, how do you uh, create an upward spiral? How do you reverse this, um, you know, no thinking, no communication? By, um, by making writing more central. So, you know, schools um, need to take responsibility uh, for that. Parents need to take responsibility for that. Schools, you know, you need more papers, uh, more, you know, longhand papers and, with, um, and high standards in schools, not lowering the standards as they've been doing until now. Second, uh, parents need to spend time with their children. They need to talk. And if there is a pregnant silence and, you know, they ask them, you know, so how was your day? Good. Um, then they need to, to probe. And they need to also lead by example. So they need to, to share about their day. But communication needs to take center stage again. It's important, as you pointed out, for relationships. It's also important for our becoming um, rational animals. Once again, as uh, Aristotle pointed out. Maybe just expand on that a second. Um, you know, the thing that we can no longer seem to tolerate anymore is the uncomfortable situation. I mean, the Larry David show obviously has taken that to extreme. It's, it's a show just about uncomfortable situations. And, you know, Seinfeld had a bunch of those as well. But today, um, it seems that the young people are doing everything they can to avoid the uncomfortable situation. Yet it seems to me what you're sort of saying is, is the greatest learning gets done and personal growth gets done because of either an uncomfortable situation or a traumatic uh, affair or event. Um, how should we encourage everyone to um, jump into an uncomfortable situation uh, with the objective of growth? Yeah, you know, so... The most important thing that we can do is, uh, as is usually the case, is lead by example. Um, what, what that means is, you know, as parents share our difficulties, our hardships, our struggles, and what we learn from them. As managers, uh, create, in the, um, in the words of Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School, psychologically safe environments where we as managers, leaders express our difficulties and hardships, uh, and where we encourage um, not just failure, we encourage talking about learning from failure, so that uh, failure doesn't become you know, the end of the world, it becomes the beginning of learning. You know, one of the mantras that I repeat over and over again, whether it's to myself, to my kids, to my clients, is learn to fail or fail to learn. Um, and when you look at the most successful uh, leaders throughout history, business people throughout history, uh, artists, scientists, um, they have uh, failed more times than, than others. In his book, uh, Originals, Adam Grant talks about how uh, the distinguishing characteristic of 
highly original individuals, they're highly innovative, creative individuals, um, is not that they get it right, is that they fail more times than others. Yeah, we had um, Ernie Freeberg talk about Thomas Edison um, and his repetitive failure uh, as, a, as a means of the creative process. So yeah, most exactly. of the great inventors are fail all the time. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so Thomas Edison, you know, two of the things that he said. One, he said, I failed my way to success. And second, when, he was, uh, when it was pointed out to him that he failed uh, 1,000 times trying to invent the, uh, the, the battery, he said, I haven't failed 1,000 uh, times. I've succeeded 1,000 times. I've succeeded in showing what doesn't work. And let's say um, you wanted to be either happier or more resilient. Um, what sort of active exercise can I do uh, to challenge myself to be either happier or more resilient in more difficult situations? Yeah, so the first one has to do with what we've just been talking about, which is giving ourselves the permission to be human, giving ourselves the permission to experience the full range of human emotions. It is when we reject painful emotions like sadness, like anger, like fear, like frustration or anxiety. When we reject these emotions, they only intensify. They grow stronger. And paradoxically, when we embrace and accept them, uh, they don't overstay their welcome. So how do we accept and embrace painful emotions? One way is to talk about it. You know, it's, we know that we talk to whether it's our best friend or a therapist, we feel better after expressing rather than suppressing our emotions. Second, writing about it. There's a lot of research um, on the importance of journaling. And that also has to do with your question about writing um, longer sentences, not just text messages. When we write and express what we, what we went through, we help the, the emo we help uh, the emotion um, be integrated into our uh, in, into who we are and grow from it. And and the third way of expressing emotion is shedding a tear. You know, the there's a lot of research showing that when we cry, we're releasing uh, oxytocin, for example, the love hormone, which calms us. We also release uh, opiates. So um, this is through expression rather than suppression of emotion. So, that, so that's first, giving ourselves the permission to be human. Uh, second, um, relationships, number one predictor of, um, of uh, happiness, number one predictor of physical health, and number one, number one predictor of post-traumatic growth is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Um, whether it's chatting, whether it's, um, whether it's doing things uh, together. And, um, and the interesting thing about, um, about the relationships is that it doesn't matter what kind of relationships, meaning there, there can be uh, um, romantic relationships. There can be with our family or an extent, extended family or with friends or with colleagues. As long as the relationship is supportive, authentic, and not perfect, supportive and authentic, then that relationship facilitates not just happiness, but also growth following uh, hardship. You know, in the words of uh, um, Francis Bacon, a British philosopher, um, friendship doubles joy and cuts grief in half. And today we have the data uh, to show just how right he was. So it's permission to be human, it's relationships. Uh, one other thing is uh, 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 physical exercise, 
There's research showing that regular physical exercise has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. In fact, it releases norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine. These are the feel-good chemicals in the brain. You know, during uh, COVID, my kid, we have three teenagers. Um, they were largely on Zoom. So throughout the, the, the year when they were on Zoom, I never used to ask them how they did in school. If they wanted, they told me. If there was a problem, the teacher called. But every day, I would talk to them about exercise or I would go exercise with them or, or, or encourage them to exercise because I just know what it does for the brain, how important it is for the body and the mind. Um, so regular physical exercise, even if our favorite gym is closed, even if we are in, uh, in, in lockdown, is critical for, uh, for well-being, for anti-fragility. And, and finally, one more, and this is probably the most talked about uh, study or um, group of studies in, uh, in the field of positive psychology, you know, gratitude. Turns out that Oprah was right. Uh, keeping a gratitude journal is good for us. Because what keeping a gratitude journal, um, especially in difficult times, is, is critical. Now, my favorite word in, in English is the word appreciate. And the word appreciate has two meanings. The first meaning of the word appreciate is to say thank you for something. And that's a nice thing to do. You know, Cicero called it the, the mother of all virtues. Um, just about every religion has gratitude at its core. But there's another meaning to the word appreciate beyond gratitude, and that is to grow in value. You know, the economy appreciates, money in the bank appreciates. Um, and the two meanings of the word appreciate are intimately linked, because what we know today is that when you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. Unfortunately, the opposite is also the case. When we do not appreciate the good, when we take the good in our lives for granted, the good depreciates. We have less of it. Um, I want to talk about um, dying for a second. Um, you know, in the Jewish tradition, we have a shiva, which is uh, the family gathers after the loss of a loved one. But during COVID, um, that wasn't possible. Um, you know, the shiva had been created. One of the great things about religion is these things have been tested out over thousands of years and have been um, focused and refined. Um, but shivas weren't possible because we couldn't get together physically during COVID. I'm just wondering, what do you think we've learned um, about how to deal with loss um, when we couldn't do a shiva and uh, what, what we can learn from that experience and, and, and what we can take to heart? Yeah. You know, um, Larry, if we, were, if we were talking 15 months ago, um, I would have pointed out when it comes to relationships that 1,000 friends on social media are no substitute for that one best friend, um, that we need those face-to-face, -face, live, in-person interactions. And I'm still 100% behind it. However, what can we do that over the last, um, uh, you know, over the last 15 months, that, that has not been possible for many people around the world. So rather than making the distinction between real and virtual relationships, which is an important one, but less helpful today, we need to make the distinction between superficial and deep relationships. So yes, ideally we want the Shiva, and again, all the research points to the importance of being together, you know, in the same room, crying, laughing, 
going through the process. There's no substitute for that. But when that's not possible, short of that, we need to make the distinction between superficial and deep. We can still enjoy deep relationships through technology, whether it's by phone, whether it's um, on, on Zoom, or as people used to do in the not so distant past, through writing, through letter writing. And we can still have and enjoy deep relationships with all the benefits thereof. One of the benefits being dealing with hardship. Again, cuts grief in half. So this is what we need to focus on. Even if we're forced, you know, relegated to uh, virtual relationships, let's not give up on depth. Not ideal, however essential. All right, uh, Tal, let's end on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? Um, so what I'm optimistic about is that what we're seeing is that people are um, changing as a result of COVID. So more people are uh, talking about um, um, and acting with kindness. Uh, more people are appreciative rather than taking for, for granted. Um, more people are focusing on um, on the basic important values, basic and important uh, when it comes to goodness and basic and important when it comes to happiness. And uh, what I'm optimistic about is that this is, um, or at least some change is going to remain even when we go back to um, whatever the new normal is. So more appreciation, uh, more focus on, on relationships, more focus on goodness and happiness. Tal, thank you so much. Our next speaker is Algeen Harmetz. She is the author of the book, The Making of Casablanca, Bogart, Bergman, and World War II. In our previous episodes of What Happens Next, we discussed literature and film, and I thought it would be fun to reexamine the classic Casablanca with a preeminent film historian. Algeen was formerly the Hollywood correspondent for the New York Times. Algeen, please lead us off with a discussion about why Casablanca is still relevant today. Well, the men and women who made Casablanca nearly 80 years ago would not recognize the movie industry today. Yet against all odds, Casablanca endures. The movie has now outlasted the century in which it was made and the people who made it. But the movie only seems to get stronger. Whenever American moviegoers are asked to name their favorite movies, Casablanca, The Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind are invariably in the top ten. As a fantasy, Oz is timeless. As a movie that looked backward 75 years to the Civil War, Gone with the Wind was equally timeless until recently when audiences were forced to take a deeper look into the movie's treatment of its black characters. What makes Casablanca's longevity so remarkable is that it was produced as a current event in 1942, a movie set in 1941 just before America's entrance into the war that had already engulfed Europe. Hundreds of forgotten World War II movies and half a dozen other characters played by Humphrey Bogart 
duplicated Rick Blaine's journey from isolation to commitment. Yet, although movies so much of their time and place seem stale decades later, Casablanca refuses to be relegated to film school classes. In 1989, it was one of the first 25 movies designated as a cultural treasure by the National Film Preservation Board. A decade after that, it was the number two movie on the American Film Institute's list of the top 100 films of the industry's first 100 years. And more recently, in a Valentine's Day poll on AOL, men overwhelmingly picked Casablanca as the most romantic movie ever made. The question is why? The unexpected magnetism between Bogart and Ingrid Bergman is one reason. Bergman was not the producer's first choice to play Yosa. But the actress he wanted, Michelle Morgan, was asking for $55,000, and David Selznick, who had Bergman under contract, would loan her to Warner Brothers for $25,000. And that was not the movie's only lucky accident. Based on an unproduced play, Everybody Comes to Rick's, The movie came with a song attached, As Time Goes By, which Matt Steiner, who composed the movie score, hated. Steiner convinced Hal Wallace, Casablanca's producer, to let him write his own song instead. But Bergman had already had her hair cut short for her role in For Whom the Bell Tolls. So as time goes by, stayed in the movie and became a classic. The second reason is the successful tension between the three men who wrote the script. All three were premature anti-fascists, but only Howard Cox would be blacklisted, even though he was not a communist. His idealism permeates the script but never overwhelms it because the other writers, Julius and Philip Epstein, undercut it with a cynical approach. It is the twins who are responsible for lines that are still used today. I'm shocked, shocked about gambling, says Captain Renault just before he is handed his gambling winnings. Todd rewrote the Epsteins to give the movie more weight and significance, and the Epsteins then rewrote Koch to ease his more ponderous symbols and lighten his earnestness. A perfect example comes when Sidney Greenstreet offers to buy Rick's Cafe. Koch has Green Street ask, how much Rick will ask for Sam, his piano player? And Rick responds, I don't buy or sell human beings. The Epsteins then have Green Street respond, that's too bad, that's 
Casablanca's leading commodity. The third reason, Rick's Cafe was not filled with the usual Hollywood extras, described as, quote, bits on day check, unquote. Some had a line or two. Some were speechless but almost all were refugees from Hitler playing refugees from Hitler. Lottie Palfi had one line in Casablanca, but can't you make it just a little more, please? As a woman trying to sell her jewels in Rick's cafe, she had played numerous theater ingenue roles. Ingrid Gruning, who spoke 30 words in Casablanca, had run the second most important drama school in Berlin. Kurt Bois, the pickpocket, was a successful comedian in Vienna. Marcel Dalio, Roots Coupier, had starred for Jean Renoir in La Grande Illusion. Wolfgang Zilser, who was shot in the opening scenes of Casablanca and died with his fingers curled around a free French pamphlet, was a cabaret star. They had all left on the far side of the Atlantic Ocean, a celebrity and esteem that could never be reclaimed. Three of the refugees were luckier. Paul Henry's Conrad Veit and Peter Lorre were in the immigrant vernacular St. Bernard's, actors whose starring roles in European films gave them a chance for success in Hollywood. And the second most emotional moment in the movie, second only to the final scene at the airport, is when Henry leads the patrons of Rick's Cafe in the Marseillaise to drown out the singing of German soldiers. And there is one final ingredient, and that is that even today, uh, the movie is in some sense ambiguous. Uh, All the way through the movie, actually, Ingrid Bergman did not know which of the actors she was going to end up with. Was it going to be Rick Blaine or Victor Laszlo, Humphrey Bogart or Paul Henry, who was her husband? She had only met Rick after she thought her husband had died. He was the leader of the underground, and he was essential to the war against the Nazis. In the end, of course, Bogart gave up Bergman for the good of the country. We all feel, I think, that in equivalent situations, we too would give up our own private life for the good of the world. Perhaps we wouldn't, but it's nice to think we would. Archie, thank you. Uh, What surprised me so much was that 
in literature, we don't have multiple authors for one piece of fiction. But here we had, I think at one point, there were nine different people involved in the script, and you highlighted the Epsteins and Howard Koch. Uh, but there were others all working on the script. Why were they so successful in piecing together a, a script that is, frankly, makes the movie? Yes, uh, the script does make the movie. And there were seven writers, but the uh, first four uh, that tried were discarded. Some of them only wrote a scene or two. Uh, Only one of them actually had uh, any effect on the movie. It was the last, uh, uh, and the only effect was in one scene. The Last three were the writers of the movie, Philip and Julius Epstein Epstein and Howard Koch. They were the three that that wrote the movie. And the Epsteins are really funny. I mean, it seems like I imagined that every one of those funny lines uh, that Bogart gives those all deserve to be given to the Epsteins. Is is that a fair assessment? They were written by the Epsteins, yes. Definitely. You also um, highlighted how times change when we look at films. Uh, You gave the example of Gone with the Wind and how recently it has um, looked down, not as appreciated anymore because of their treatment for black characters. Um, as I watched Casablanca, I, I kept asking myself the same question: Could a film like this be made now? Uh, in particular, oh. I was thinking more of the of the natives uh, to Casablanca. The, really, the only scene where there are natives is a scene where um, the England Bergman character Ilsa Lund uh, is looking at buying some fabrics, and the the native says it's seven hundred francs. And then when Rick comes by, he says, oh, you're a friend of Rick's. I'll make it 200. And she says, no, thank you. How about 100? And so uh, they make the natives out to be shysters, and that's it. Here we are in a foreign country set in a foreign place, and there's almost no indication that there are foreigners even living there. What do you make of that? And do you think that would be acceptable in today's environment? Well, I think there are other reasons that Casablanca couldn't be made today. Uh, there's too much talk and not enough action. There are too many characters, and uh, the plot spins in a hard-to-catch-your-balance way instead of walking a straight line. Uh, I think uh, there's no Humphrey Bogart to allow the audience a permissible romance without feeling somewhat sappy. In my last line in the book, I say, and the studio would insist that all the ambiguity be written out in the second draft. There were about eight drafts of Casablanca, by the way. I don't know in terms of the native characters. Certainly some people, I think, would would uh, would scream about it. But would real audiences? Uh, I haven't heard about anything on uh, social media um, 
and Casablanca is wildly available on streaming. Fair enough. You know, one of the ambiguities in the film that was never answered was uh, what was Humphrey Bogart even doing in Casablanca? Um, Claude Rains' character, Captain Renault, suggests that um, did you steal the church's uh, funds? Did you kill a, uh, Did you run away with a senator's wife? Um, did you kill a man? And Bogart responds, a combination of all three. Uh, and he, they never answer the question. And I guess why... Why can't we have ambiguity? Why do we have to have all our questions answered? Doesn't a better film allow for ambiguity? Uh, I think so. But if you see what's successful today, uh, which is mostly comic books blown up into film, uh, there are heroes and there are villains. There always have been. But in this movie... Casablanca, there are heroes who are flawed and there are villains uh, who have the possibility for redemption. What I found amazing was I have uh, half a dozen interns who work on the show and I asked them what they thought of the movie Casablanca and none of them had seen it. And it's I think there's a natural uh, lack of interest and a distaste for older films, um, particularly black and white ones. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, as a as a as a child, I got to watch Turner Classics. I was exposed to these old films, and it was because there was very limited stuff on TV. Uh, now, with it seems like an infinite amount of material, the older films have been discarded by the last generation or our current generation. Um, how do you think about how to re-engage uh, our children with these classics? Uh, I think you're absolutely right, by the way, because I had the same experience uh, the other day uh, when um, somebody of the, uh, you know, 20, 22 um, had basically never heard of Casablanca. So um, I think it's now going to be kept alive in uh, film classes. You know, you mentioned the current blockbusters are a bunch of cartoon characters, and it's been true for a long time now. Uh, I looked at a list of the top 10 movies over the past decade, and they were virtually all uh, of that genre, and I hadn't seen any of them. But when I looked at you know the best pictures or things that have been nominated for best picture, I had seen those films. Does this just reflect um, a split in the type of viewing experience that people want? There's there's still the sophisticated, uh, sharp, interesting, comedic films that fit the needs of of critics like you. Uh, but also giving you know the, the seventeen year old boy what he wants as well. Can't they both? Can't they both be made? Uh, sure, they can both be made, but they may both have to be distributed differently. In other words, I think you will be able to pack theaters with uh, Marvel. Universe, the Star.
Star Wars universe. Um, and I think you can pack streaming, not only with those films, but with the more serious or the more subtle or the more interesting, ambivalent films. You highlighted the singing of the song, The Marseillaise, um, as one of the critical features uh, of a high moment in the film. And what I thought was interesting was they turned to um, Humphrey Bogart's, Rick Blaine's character's uh, old girlfriend, Yvonne, who is at the bar. And she is singing it out, belting it out, uh, and there's tears running down the the side of her cheeks. Um, At the same time, she is the one who has brought a German officer to be her date, uh, which also caused a bit of a kerfuffle with a French officer who calls her a, a Bosch, uh, someone who is uh, sleeping with the enemy. Um, why do you think they combined the girl who's sleeping with the enemy to be the one uh, belting out the song and is so emotionally attached? Um, I think, by the way, she's sleeping with the enemy because it's the best way she can get back at Bogart for spurning her. And I think that choosing her to have the tears shows uh, even more the depth of the song on all of the people there. The the film also, um, it's like an archetype in many dimensions. And for me, I always, I mean, I, I, I'll agree that it's a very romantic movie, but in some ways I think of it as like a buddy movie. You know, just like one of those Eddie Murphy's Dick Nolte films, here is Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart, uh, two buddies going at it throughout, and they're constantly intertwined. Um, and at the end, the, it appears that the, the buddy relationship has gone to the next level. How do you think about Casablanca as a, as a, as a buddy film? Uh, I've never thought of it that way uh, because they're sparring all the way through the um, uh, movie. Uh, You picked part of that conversation. I uh, thought that that there were the part you didn't say between uh, Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart was uh, uh, even funnier. Why did you choose Casablanca? I came for the waters. What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. No, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's, I'm laughing when I repeat it. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's great dialogue. Um, but and- you know that that last line, uh, I... Uh, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, um, was written by Hal Wallace, the movie's director, several weeks after the movie was finished. Uh, He was not satisfied with the end of the movie. It's done as a voiceover because the film had already wrapped. Yes, absolutely, yes. But I think the reason why um, that, that line is so successful is it's built on the on the buddy movie that pre- preceded it, was my point. 
I see it. I hadn't seen it as a buddy movie because the buddies are usually more attached. They're not sparring most of the way through. All right, well, we try a different question. Um, Casablanca wins the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1943, um, and it sort of disappears after a while. Um, and then it reappears after Bogart's death. Uh, in the book you mentioned, it started being played at some Harvard uh, theaters, um, and then it blossoms. Um, why do you think it became a cult film? Um, I think part of it was uh, because it started uh, with the college students and also probably because of Bogart's death. And uh, when a major actor dies, usually all of his films are suddenly available in a way that they, you know, maybe had been forgotten before. My favorite movie growing up was the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And when I think about why that became a cult film, I think it's because of Frank Capra, who was the director of that film. Uh, it was made not by the studios, but by his own uh, film company that he created. Anyway, after he passed... Uh, his heirs forgot to renew the copyright. And as a result, uh, It's a Wonderful Life entered the public domain. And it was, free to, it was free to show it. It was very frequently shown on television. And it was shown almost continuously between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And as a result, it became um, a cult film uh, in the 1980s. And Turner acquired... Casablanca, and they showed it more than any other film on the Turner Classic Station. Do you think that, you know, potentially the sale to Turner and uh, the return of the Turner Classics allowed this to, to take off, allowed Casablanca to be such a watched film and loved? It's pretty likely that it had a great effect, yes. But I, the film's ambiguity is what has kept it from feeling stale today. The, the one character uh, <laughs> uh, whom uh, um, uh, the film critic Pauline Kael referred to as stale is Victor Laszlo. And he's the one character who's perfect. Everybody else in the film has or almost everybody else has some ambiguity and there's none in him. And so he's the only person in the film who's uninteresting today. Yeah, he is. He is a bore. You're right. What did you think of Ingrid Bergman's character and her performance? Did it make the film? Uh, I think that Michelle Morgan would have been no match for Humphrey Bogart and no, and there would have been no chemistry. 
that the amazing thing was that if you put these two people, you said, I'm going to put Ingrid Bergman in a movie with Humphrey Bogart, you would have, if you'd been a studio executive, you would have said, oh, but there won't be any chemistry. And wow, you would have been wrong. But as Lauren Bacall uh, quoted to me what uh, 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 Bogart uh, would say to her, if Ingrid Bergman looks at a man like that, you know, that man has sex appeal, essentially. It's all on the way Bergman, you know, reacts. He is saying not the way the man reacts. You know, you mentioned um, why the characters in the film find this discussion so important, but it's also, I think, very important uh, for the audience. And each each person brings their own uh, emotional response. At the time uh, of its release, it was when uh, the war had just really begun. And um, my own family had its own issues uh, related to this. Um, My grandparents were desperate to get out of France during the war and come to the United States. Um, When the war started, my grandfather joined uh, the French Foreign Legion, and my mother and grandmother were stuck in Paris. And like uh, Ilse Lund and Rick Blaine, they were there when the Germans uh, came into Paris and rushed for the train station. where Ilsa doesn't, doesn't show. But my grandmother described the train station as absolute pandemonium. They've later found my grandfather and spent the war uh, in Marseille. And ironically, it was the U.S. invasion of Casablanca in November 1942 uh, when the Germans decided to uh, occupy Vichy, France. Uh, that's when my grandfather decided it was time to make a rush for the border. They had a U.S. visa, but like all the people in, in the movie Casablanca, they couldn't get a French exit visa. Uh, no Jew got one in 1942. So they, my grandfather sent my grandmother to the old port in Marseille to get uh, a forged exit visa, which my grandfather said cost very little money. Uh, and then they rushed for the border, fled over the Pyrenees, and like Victor Laszlo, ended up in Lisbon uh, catching a, a boat to the United States. Um, I find, as a as a personal story, that you know my family lived this uh, a similar experience, and therefore I have a very emotional attachment to the situation. Um, but it's different for each individual who watches uh, the program. Yes, I I think it is, but I think in a simpler time, I think we all thought that if we were put in the situation of giving up uh, something we wanted badly for the good of all, that we would have done it. Today, I doubt that very much. That's fantastic. Algene, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to address a question to Tal. Tal, uh, you just heard uh, what Algene has to say, and I know you um, are planning to be teaching some classes in film and great films. Um, what are your thoughts on Algene's view of, of the film? Well, first of all, uh, I can't tell you how moved um, I was or am um, because um, I think there is a lot at stake here. 
in terms of whether or not we get uh, this generation, the future generation, to 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 watch these movies, to uh, um, to watch classics, to read uh, the classics, uh, and it has to do very much with what uh, you and I spoke about, which is the ability to uh, to communicate and the ability to think. And um, you know, if all we watch are you know fireworks and uh, you know and and, and fast moving entities on screen uh, because that is what uh, our, our brain is used to watching then um then we, we then we have little hope if we start you know if we sit down and are challenged and um and there are ambiguities um then um th- th- then we learn how to think then we learn about the human condition tell why do you think uh casablanca became this cult movie and and is of all the films made that year is, or even during the war is the one that's uh, most seen, most known, uh, most thought about, had the greatest impact. Yeah. You know, in, in, in many ways it, it had it all. You know, I, uh, when I, when I talk about the field of happiness studies, um, I talk about micro happiness and macro happiness. So individual happiness and environmental happiness, just like there is micro and macro economics. And this movie had both. Uh, it talks about the, the, the condition of, of you know, the, the human being on the micro level. So, you know, there's a love affair. Um, and this is something, you know, the, those interpersonal emotions that we can all connect to, relationships. But then it also talks about the environment, about the macro, about good versus evil. And um, these are also very important uh, uh, conversations uh, to have. These are all um, very important sentiments to experience. Again, on the individual and the macro level, it have, has them both. And also um, the, the, the complexity of the, of the characters, where it's not just um, good or bad. It's uh, evolving characters, uh, complex characters, real human beings, in other words, that we can connect to. Tal, you spoke about the role of trauma and personal growth uh, in your conversation earlier. Um, and what's unusual is that most of the characters in this film are under almost constant trauma, fear of death, fear of capture, um, and dying in Casablanca, as one character says in it. I just, I'm going to die here. Um, and some of them grow and some of them don't. Um, there's a belief that Rick Blaine grows because he decides to join the fight. Even Captain Renault um, mm-hmm. decides that he's going to stop taking advantage of young women in trouble and enjoying the free French in Brazzaville at the end, uh, in, along with Rick. Um, how do you think about trauma and personal growth uh, as one of the features of the film? No, I, I think it's um, you can you can sense it uh, throughout. And again, this this movie was was uh, made released before the end of uh, World War II and um, and before uh, you know publication. Of the um, of the seminal book by Viktor Frankl, uh, *Man's Search for Meaning*, one of the ways to bring about uh, post-traumatic growth, one of the ways to grow through hardship uh, for anti-fragility is by finding meaning. Um, you know, when we talk about happiness, most people today talk about uh, you know pleasure. I, you know, I went to the beach; I was so happy. Or you know, this ice cream makes me so happy. You know, th- yeah, this is part of happiness, but it's a small part of happiness. The the, the bigger chunk uh, of a happy life is a sense of meaning and purpose. 
And this is the transition that the characters uh, went through throughout the book. You know, so at the end, um, both the um, um, both uh, Humphrey Bogart and um, uh, and, and Captain uh, uh, Renan, both of them found a sense of a deep sense of meaning and and purpose that transcends everything, that helps grow through hardships, that helps post post traumatic growth, and it's this sense of meaning that. Um, um, by the way, not, not just through hardships and difficulties, that is essential for a good life. There's, uh, there's research actually coming out of uh, Stanford by William Damon saying that the, um, that the uh, most um, harmful and dangerous affliction that our young generation experiences today is the lack of meaning and purpose, um, which is now, why this, just, this, this movie just is so important today. Alcine, I, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Um, you know, in that last scene, um, Rick Blaine tells Ilsa Lund that she, she has to get on that plane, that uh, you may not regret it now, um, but you regret it later, maybe not tomorrow, maybe the next day, or maybe years from now, that you didn't get on that plane. Um, what do you think? Do you, do you believe him? Do you think that she regrets it, getting on that plane uh, within five minutes and will regret not spending her life? Uh, with her plane, or um, have we already forgotten Ilsa as soon as she's on the plane? We, in our hearts, are more focused on the concerns uh, of Rick Blaine and Captain Renault. Oh, no. I'm sure that she already regrets it. Mm-hmm. But it is her, quote, duty. Um, I want to say something about the end of the movie, which is it could so easily have essentially turned into sentimental slush that would have spoiled the rest of the movie. Um, And I want to point out, uh, because um, uh, my cohort there mentioned uh, uh, Claude Rains and or Claude Rains' character uh, going off with Rick. Uh, Epstein kept the movie from falling into the trap of sentimentality, I think, because when you see what uh, Captain Renault does before that um, uh, trip, across the desert is um, instead of saying any highfalutin thing, he uh, starts to pour himself a bottle of Vichy water and he takes a look at it and throws it in the waste paper basket. It's a wordless scene, but it's really uh, mentally important to show that he switched teams uh, onto the Allied side. Yes. Uh, Tal, as, as, a, as a final question for you, um, Al Jean was just mentioning how easily we, we go to sentimentality. And I think that reflects a greater desire, not only in the movies, but also a desire for the public um, to have a positive sentimental ending uh, and slush. Uh, as is typical ending. In other words, the movie theaters aren't doing this for their own cause. They do it because 
that is what the public either seemingly wants or does want. How do we? What is that sentimentality about? And is it something that's healthy or is it unhealthy? Um, you know, I think the question is, um, or, or, or rather, sentimentality is part of the human condition, uh, whether we like it or or not. And um, the question is, how much do we let it dictate how we live our lives? Um, you know, you look at the, um, you know, at, at um, the decision that Ingrid Bergman had to make. She had to make a decision between sentimentality and uh, and a sense of meaning and purpose. Sometimes they are in conflict, and, and we all experience these conflicts. Um, it's a conflict between right and right, because yes, of course, she and, and, and Rick deserve you know, to live happily ever after. Um, at the same time, they also understand that um, there, there is something more important um, than sentimentality. It's also about uh, a larger sense of meaning and purpose. So this choice between right and right as Joseph Badaracco from Harvard Business School talks about, is at the center of, um, of, of the ultimate decision that both uh, um, uh, Bogart and Bergman have to make. And this is also part of the reason why this, uh, th- this movie is, uh, uh, has staying power, because we all face right versus right decisions uh, in, in our lives, at work, in our homes. Okay. Uh, that ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's program. Uh, next Sunday on June 20th, Mark Mahaney, who has consistently been recognized as the number one equity analyst in Internet research on Wall Street, will join us. We're going to hear from him about Amazon, Airbnb, among other uh, Internet stocks. Uh, we will have another speaker, uh, Paul Podolsky, who will tell us about his challenges of parenting an adopted child who is now a criminal. He will discuss his book entitled Raising a Thief, a Memoir. I imagine the enormous heartache and difficulty of that predicament. In my uh, discussion with Algene Harmetz, I mentioned my grandfather's escape from the Nazis. If you want to learn more about it, please check out my grandfather's memoir, The McKee Connection, available on Kindle and audiobook. Uh, I do the reading of the audiobook myself. Uh, my Aunt Sharon has made a documentary film about my family's escape from Vichy, France, entitled A Song for You. A link to both the McKee Connection and to my Aunt Sharon's film is available on our website. Please do take a look. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them at our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Replays of this program and others are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please check out our new social media outlet on Twitter at What Happens in Six. We want to engage with our audience and hear your views and ask questions for the show. I want to create a community that learns together. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you so much. Uh, You can hang up now. Bye-bye.